Lord, we do thank you for your intentionality and purpose to uh, rescue humanity from the mess we've gotten ourselves into, despite all of the ways you've set us up. Uh, you set up our forefathers, our forefather Adam, uh, to succeed. Um, and we know that that same rebellious heart is in ourselves, and yet you continue to act similarly toward us, full of grace. Um, we thank you that you've purposed to make a way uh, to complete what you began and to include us in that. Um, we pray that as we learn more about that plan, that we would learn to better obey and follow you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. <clears throat> so let's start very briefly with just a little bit of review of significant themes from Genesis and Exodus. And I've kind of outlined the major ones there with some space to make some notes if you want. God's presence. We noticed in Genesis 2, we saw this wonderful situation in which Adam and Eve dwelt in God's life-giving presence. But then in chapter 3, because of a refusal to trustingly obey the Lord, uh, they were expelled from God's presence. And so in light of that backdrop, where we found ourselves at the end of Exodus with the Lord taking up residence in the tabernacle in Israel's midst is a really significant event. The Lord is again dwelling sort of in the midst of this new garden. And for sure, the land given to Abraham will really become the new garden but even in the wilderness, Israel as a people functions a bit like the new garden, where the Lord dwells in their midst. So in terms of God's presence, that's kind of what we've seen from Genesis setting out that that's the way it all began in chapter 2, and then the way that was lost in chapter 3, and the way that through a variety of events, a series of events we've seen through the rest of Genesis and Exodus, we find the Lord again dwelling in the midst of a people whom he's made holy to himself, sanctified for himself, Israel. And then in terms of relationship between God and humans, this presence isn't merely some sterile matter of location, as though it's simply where God is, his physical presence, but it's really more a matter of relationship with God. And that's why I've been using the phrase relational presence, God's relational presence. And we saw this obviously in the garden, where it wasn't just that God was present and man was present, and they happened to be in the same place, but there was actually an intimate relationship between them. And then we saw in Genesis chapter 17, as God's making those promises to Abraham, as sort of a bit of a new Adam, who will, through whom he'll restore what he began and complete what he began in the garden, there we saw a promise that said this, I will establish my covenant between you, uh, between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. And then verse eight, I will be their God. That's Genesis 17, seven and eight. So there's a promise again in the Abrahamic promise for this relationship. It's not just land. It's not just descendants. It's not just kings. But very importantly, it's this relationship which doesn't get mentioned too regularly in the Abrahamic covenant, but really comes to the fore and is highlighted in uh, the Mosaic covenant. 
And we saw that particularly in Exodus 19, where you'll remember the summary of the covenant made there um, said this, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. There's this relationship language. You shall be my own possession among all the peoples, and really my, my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me kings and priests and a holy nation. That is a nation that's consecrated to me. So we see there the promise that Israel will be in this relationship with the Lord. And regularly, this relationship is referred to subsequently with what's often called the covenant formula. I will be God to you and you will be a people to me, my people. I will be your God, you will be my people. And we really see these two strands of presence and relationship brought together clearly in Exodus 29. So turn your Bibles to Exodus 29. This is one of the passages we looked at last week where we saw just with clarity that the purpose of the tabernacle was as a place for God to dwell. But I want you to see here that God's presence and the relationship come together very clearly in this passage. So Exodus chapter 29, beginning in verse 45. Notice first we see presence. I will dwell among the sons of Israel. And then relationship. And will be their God. And then 46, relationship. They shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. And then presence. That... I might dwell among them. And then back to relationship. I am the Lord their God. Do you guys see how those are coming together? So clearly this presence and relationship go together, which I've often been referring to the relational presence. So what God is restoring through the tabernacle is not just his presence, but his presence with his people as part of a relationship with his people. And so at the end of Exodus... We saw that God takes up residence in the tabernacle. But in light of what we've observed through the first two books about humans, this poses a problem. We know what happened to Adam and Eve when they rebelled and weren't trusting the Lord and obeying the Lord. They were expelled, exiled from the garden, right? They couldn't dwell in his presence. And then we've seen throughout the rest of Genesis and all of Exodus, that that same nature, that same impulse has been within all the subsequent humans, right? Some have done slightly better from time to time. There have been people like Noah and Abraham who can sometimes be said to be blameless, but they still follow in that same line. Um, even more recently, at the, in the latter part of Exodus, we observe that just as God was finalizing the covenant with Israel at Sinai, Israel formed a golden calf and thereby broke the covenant. Really, even before the, the creation of the covenant is quite done. So, this relational presence of the Lord with his people, this relational presence of the Lord with his people is wonderful and that it's being restored, but the question we're left with at the end of Exodus is how can this be maintained? Is this really a viable, workable thing that the Lord would dwell 
in the midst of his people, yes, but those people are still rebellious. How is this arrangement going to work? And as I mentioned last week, the book of Leviticus provides God's answer to this under the Mosaic Covenant. So, that's the review of major themes that lead us into what the book of Leviticus is going to teach us. So starting now with the situation. As with Exodus, Moses composed Leviticus for Israel during the time between Mount Sinai and Moses' death just before Israel entered the Promised Land. Then, for the purpose, the purpose of the book of Leviticus is to instruct Israel in how to maintain the Lord's relational presence in her midst in the face of the threat, sin, and impurity posed to that relational presence. Is that clear? Okay. And hopefully the, the significance of that is very clear after we've now looked at Genesis and Exodus. And now for the structure. Um, Leviticus doesn't give us a super clear structure, um, but at least the first part of this outline is widely recognized. At the end, it becomes a little bit harder exactly to um, outline. But I have a seven-part structure here. You'll notice the first five parts all begin with um, a phrase drawn from the purpose. Maintaining God's relational presence by, and in chapters 1 to 7, we see it's maintaining God's relational presence by offerings or sacrifices. And then in chapters 8 through 10, maintaining God's relational presence by priestly mediation through the role of priests. Number three, in chapters 11 to 15, maintaining God's relational presence by dealing with uncleanness or impurity. Those two terms are really interchangeable. Number four, maintaining God's relational presence by the Day of Atonement. Chapter 16, and then chapter 17 to 25, maintaining God's relational presence by holy lives. Part 6, or section 6, chapter 26, uh, how the Lord will bless obedience and punish disobedience. And then finally, this last chapter, we'll talk about just a bit more when we get there. Um, it's, it's interesting because it's put on the end, and almost everyone, all commentators, struggle to know exactly how it relates. And I'll explain, it doesn't seem all that strange, but that's kind of why I've called it initially an appendix, but it relates to instructions for vows. But we'll address that a bit more when we get there. All right, so with that in place, let's now jump into working section by section to survey this book. So keep your hand out. On the right page there, and then have your Bible open too, if you can manage both. So first, maintaining God's relational presence by offerings. Maintaining God's relational presence by offerings in chapters 1 through 7. This section explains how the five main types of offerings are to be made. Five main types. And first, he groups together three of them. Those would be the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, and the peace offerings. And those are found in chapters 1 through 3 and really broken down just like that. Burnt offerings in chapter 1, peace off or grain offerings in chapter 2, and peace offerings in chapter 3. And these three offerings are generally aimed at worshiping the Lord without reference to remedying sin or impurity. 
So we'll see that when we get to the latter two of these five, the off- those latter two are aimed at dealing with sin or dealing with impurity. These first three seem to be more aimed at just worshiping the Lord, bringing him a gift, an offering, not necessarily dealing with those other problems. Um, the burnt offering one is a bit interesting because there's one statement that mentions atonement, but by and large it seems like it fits with the grain and uh, peace offerings and simply being means of worshiping the Lord. And then we come to chapter 4, really chapter 4 through the middle of chapter 5, where we find the sin offering, or sometimes it's called purification offering. This one is aimed at dealing with sin and impurity by effecting atonement and consequently forgiveness or purity. I'm realizing there's a table I wanted to include in there for you. So if I don't pull up on the screen here for you, uh, a little table, when we get to the section on chapters 11 through 15, stop me before we move to Day of Atonement, okay? That'll be the best spot to insert it, though. Basically, I just want you to help you think through what uncleanness or impurity is in relation to sin, um, because sometimes that connection can be kind of confusing. All right, so sin offering aimed at dealing with both sin and impurity by bringing about atonement, and then what results is either forgiveness, if what's being atoned is sin, or what results is purity, if what's being dealt with is impurity. Does that make sense? And atonement, there's lots of discussion about what exactly this term refers to, but generally it seems to have two sides. So think of it as a coin, it's two sides. One side is simply purging or wiping away, purifying. There's, you know, sin or uncleanness. Atonement simply means that's removed, taken away. The other side deals with ransoming, ransoming. So, to give me an example of this, uh, there's a text, I believe it's Exodus 21, where the noun form of this word is used. And there, we find that the owner of a ox that has been in the habit of goring in the past and is not restrained by its owner and then gores someone to death, his life must be taken. He must be, the owner must be put to death because he knew that this animal had a habit of that and didn't restrain it. But it says that the family of the person who's gored to death can offer the man the option of paying a ransom. So he'll pay some money in return to the family and his life will be spared. So you can see there the concept, something given in place of one losing their life, right? Does that make sense? And so the idea is that when one is impure or when one is unclean in the presence of the Lord, the obvious result is death. That's what's required. And so atonement both removes that uncleanness or impurity, but it also deals with the problem already created, which is that their life needs to be taken. Make sense? It spares their life. It ransoms their life. So those are the two sides of atonement uh, that are being dealt with. And the sin offering accomplishes that. And it usually says the, the result is forgiveness. Now, this section, 4, 1 through five thirteen, is organized first by who brings the offering. So there could be uh, the high priest bringing the sin offering. Or that could be for the whole congregation. Or it could just be for a leader, generically. Or it could be for any one of the common people. 
And then some of them are subdivided based upon the type of animal that's brought. You know, whether it's a lamb or whether it's birds. Um, and a lot of times that's even based upon the, uh, how much money the pe- person has, what they can afford. So that's how the section on sin offerings is structured. Now, just a quick note about these references to unintentional sins or sins through ignorance. On the one hand, it's quite obvious that these refer to sins that someone isn't aware they've committed. They don't intend to do it per se, but through negligence or whatever, they've, they've sinned or they've become unclean in some way. But it seems like it might even go a bit beyond that and sometimes refer to sins the person knows they have committed, but were done um, just by succumbing to temptation and not necessarily with a blatant intent to reject the Lord. And I say that because, um, for now, I'll have you write this down. Later, if, we, if we're doing well on time, maybe we'll look at it, but it's unlikely we'll be doing well on time. Uh, Numbers chapter 15, Numbers chapter 15, verses 27 to 31. 15, 27 to 31. There, we see this distinction between unintentional sins and blatant sins or defiant sins or really the Hebrew there is like um, a high-handed sin a sin with a raised hand so you can think about it something that's done very defiantly basically it's it's a enacted way of saying I don't care about the Lord I have I want nothing to do with this covenant with him um, in some sense, we could think of it almost under the category of apostasy. But those seem to be the two major categories. And so it seems like sometimes the ignorant sin or the sin done um, unintentionally maybe goes a bit beyond just simply being totally ignorant to ones that aren't necessarily defying the Lord blatantly, but are nonetheless sins they're aware they're doing, but quick to want to offer sacrifice or atonement for. All right, so that is the sin offering. And now let's move to the guilt offering or the reparation offering, which we find in chapter 5, verse 14, through chapter 6, verse 7. Now this guilt offering, we won't spend much time talking about it because it's very similar in what it does to the sin offering. It essentially is offered when there's sin or impurity and it accomplishes atonement for them. Largely, the difference is what kind of situations it's offered for. But we won't spend more time on that. Then, to round out this section, we find in chapter 6, verse 8, through the end of chapter 7, instructions regarding the priest's role in these offerings. And this section is primarily concerned with eating the offerings, because the priests um, didn't necessarily offer up all of it. The burnt offering was the one that all of it was offered up. But for all the rest, only portions were offered up on the fire. In other portions, the priests were allowed to keep. And that's ultimately really how they would be fed. Remember, the priests weren't given parcels of land or things like that. Um, They largely were fed and provided for by the people and by things like these offerings. So not only the ones actually serving, but even their families had to be provided for. So it gives instructions regarding the eating of the offerings. It deals with things like who may eat, which offerings they may eat, which portions of those offerings they may eat, and when they may eat them. There are certain windows of time when they can eat them. So 
in summary, this first section, chapters 1 to 7, um, explains the offerings the Lord provided to Israel as a means to maintain his relational presence in her midst, despite the recurrence of sin and impurity. So remember how we entered this. There's going to be sin and impurity. The Lord's provided a means through these offerings to be able to maintain his presence, to deal with that sin and impurity. Next, part two, verses or chapters eight through ten, is maintaining God's relational presence by priestly mediation. Retaining God's relational presence by priestly mediation. So after having laid out these instructions for the offerings in chapters 1 through 7, chapters 8 and 9, notice this section covers 8 through 10, but first focusing on those first two chapters, 8 and 9, it explains how they're implemented. The priests are anointed and dedicated and they begin doing the work. They begin doing the sacrifices that were prescribed for them. And it culminates at the end of chapter 9. So turn your Bibles to the end of chapter 9. <clears throat> it felt very comfortable in here when we came in, but it's already beginning to feel a bit warmer. Is that, is that what you guys are sensing too? Let's see if we can fix this. good sound all right so the end of chapter 9 look at verse 22 then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them and he stepped down after making the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting this is the first time we've seen this they're moving closer than we've seen yet back to the garden as it were back to God's presence they went into the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people. Here they're doing what priests do, right? Priests are mediators. They mediate this blessing between God and people. So they go in. They're in the presence of the Lord inside the tent of meeting. They come out. They bless the people. And we see that the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And then there's this awesome scene in the next verse. Then fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. So the Lord actually is the one who ignites this offering. He sends a fire out to start it, and people realize, wow, the Lord really is dwelling in there. Um, And they can see he's pleased with this. So in many ways, this is like a culmination going even beyond what we just saw. We saw the Lord take up residence at the end of Exodus in the tabernacle, and now we actually see that you have priests entering into that place and the Lord accepting their offerings. So this movement back toward God and enjoying his relational presence presence is making more progress as the Lord's instructions for this are being observed. But next comes chapter 10. Look at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 10. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans and after putting fire in them placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord which he had not commanded them and fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord 
Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy, and before all the people, I will be glorified. So Aaron therefore kept silent. So what a contrast, huh? To what we just saw. So what what happened here (laughs) with this massive contrast? Well, we don't really know exactly what happened. There are all kinds of ideas, and there's evidence really in support of each one. Um, It's really kind of a matter of which of the evidence you prioritize. Um, But what is clear, at least one of the things that's clear, is seen there at the end of verse 1, that what they did is that which the Lord had not commanded them. And that comes out very clearly when you go back and look at chapters 8 through 9 and see how many times... um, I'm just going to count them up here. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine times it says that Moses or Aaron, what they did was just what the Lord commanded them to do. So in chapters eight and nine, we keep seeing they did this as the Lord commanded. They did this as the Lord commanded. And then here they did this, the strange fire, which the Lord had not commanded. So it really stands out pretty clearly. So whatever exactly it was, we know it was something other than what the Lord had instructed. And that's clear enough, I think, for what the text is trying to communicate. This is wonderful what the Lord's providing, and yet it's risky business dwelling in the presence of the Lord if you aren't willing to obey him. And so they're just seeing this is important that we observe what the Lord has said because his presence is not something to be trifled with. It's wonderful, wonderful blessing if you're willing to trust him and obey him. All right. So what's, I already covered that, what's the purpose of the narrative? So summary, let's summarize um, this section on priestly mediation, maintaining God's relational presence by priestly mediation. In this section, or this section explains the role of the priests as mediators to help maintain the Lord's relational presence in Israel's midst, despite the recurrence of sin and impurity. All right, now moving into the middle portion. And this is where I'll pull up that table for you. Uh, Chapters 11 through 15. So this section is one of those ones that maybe seems most perplexing to us from our perspective. It contains instructions for avoiding uncleanness where that's possible. It's not always possible to avoid uncleanness. And then how to cleanse oneself after having become unclean. And then I put there in your notes, just as you're reading along to try to help you track with what's going on, just the basic structure of this section, chapters 11 through 15. In chapter 11, we see clean and unclean animals. When you think about unclean food, the two primary places are here, Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14. We'll get to Deuteronomy 14 next week. But here, clean and unclean animals. Then uh, chapter 12, cleansing after childbirth. Then chapters 13 and 14, diagnosing and dealing with uncleanness on human skin, in garments, and on houses. And then finally, chapter 15, regulations relating to bodily discharges. So what is the deal with these things that are deemed unclean, but seem to not be immoral or unethical from our perspective? What's going on here? Why are these things considered to be unclean? Well, first of all, look at Leviticus chapter 15, the end of this section. 
And this verse we'll look at here at the end of chapter 15 reminds us kind of about the importance and purpose of these instructions related to uncleanness. So chapter 15, verse 31. Thus you shall keep the sons of Israel separated from their uncleanness so that they will not die in their uncleanness by their defiling my tabernacle that is among them. So uncleanness defiles the tabernacle and thereby opens them up to death. Is that making sense? So that's the reason it's so important, but it still leaves us with the question of why exactly is uncleanness defiling the tabernacle? First of all, as you look at the various um, options out there, uh, let me first actually pull up this table so I don't forget about this. Everyone see that? I'm not sure if I can make it go a little bit bigger. So I'm not sure if this, I'll give you a little more explanation, but maybe this helps you at least kind of categorize what's going on. You see here, got kind of four categories, with the left two being termed impurity, the right two being termed sin. And with a movement from less serious across to more serious, and then how they're dealt with. So the less serious forms of impurity are remedied by passage of time or washing with water. So these types of ones that say simply wait until the end of the day, or wash with water, and it's dealt with. Then there are some types of impurity that are remedied by sacrifice, like the sin offering or the guilt offering. Then... There are these, this other category that are termed sin, so they're a little more serious, but these also have to be remedied by sacrifice. So atonement is affecting each of these, but atonement in this case brings about cleanness. Atonement in this case brings about forgiveness. And then finally, there's this most serious sin over here um, for which no sacrifice is available. The person must be cut off. Sorry, you guys can't see it over there, can you? Um, the person must be cut off. Maybe I can turn this a bit. Without knocking my computer off? Is it too far there? Can you see it? Okay. Now you can't. You already got your chance to see it. Um, Yeah, so anyways, maybe that just helps you with some categories to think about this. Now, moving on to try to give a bit more of an explanation. So in terms of what makes these impurity things, the things that aren't sin, but nonetheless still create problems and still threaten the lives 
of the Israelites in the Lord's midst. There are a variety of explanations, and quite frankly, I don't find any of them to be totally satisfying. I don't find any of them to answer all of the the questions or the issues. But the one I'm going to give you, I think, is moving in the right direction, and it's reflective of where I think most uh, people are on this. So here's kind of the, the category, how we need to think about it. We must remember that the world outside the garden is fallen, right? It's unedenic. It's not characterized. Wow, since I'm having a good time over there. Not characterized by the same kinds of things that life in the garden is characterized by. It's without God's life-giving presence. However, God is purposing to reinitiate, or sorry, to initiate. Um, his life-giving presence in a portion of the world, right? An outpost. So he's going to restore that here in the midst of Israel. Kind of an outpost of his presence in the world. And the tabernacle is what's functioning as representing this outpost. But there are varying spheres moving outward from the Holy of Holies. Let me pull that up, actually. So just really quickly orient you. I'll give you guys a chance to see in just a moment. Um, So this would be the tabernacle. And you enter into the courtyard here. And here's the the altar of burnt offerings. And then a laver for washing. And then here would be the actual tabernacle. So let's move to now a, a picture that zooms in. Here we are. All right. So within the tabernacle, there's the two main sections, and back here would be the Holy of Holies, which is where the Ark is. So the Holy of Holies is, as the name suggests, the the most holy place, the place where God's presence is most fully concentrated, and therefore that's the purest or most holy. And as you move out, there's varying rings. Um, The high priest alone can go in here once a year, but then entrance into here is a bit more frequent. Um, And then even entrance into that courtyard is a bit more frequent, but it's still some measure of, it requires a higher measure of, say, cleanliness than further out. Even the camp of Israel requires cleanliness. There are certain forms of uncleanness that require people to remain outside the camp until they're clean again. So think of these spheres radiating outward from the center, the most holy place being the Holy of Holies. Pretty descriptive title. Um, So keeping in mind that the world is unedenic, it's fallen, it's it's full of death, the opposite of God's life-giving presence. So there's sort of like this contrast between God's presence there in the, the world outside, and there's a continuum in between, depending upon where they fall in relation to that. So to bring things that characterize life in the fallen world near to the center risks defiling the center and forcing God's presence away. And that's in the face of the fact that the goal is to expand that garden-esque center outward, right? Not to actually drive it away by bringing fallen things in there. 
So with that spatial logic in mind, we can understand that things like corpses, right? Corpses are something that's dealt with. If you touch a corpse, you're unclean. Well, corpses relate to death, right? Is that more characteristic of God's life-giving presence or to the world permeated by death because of the fall? The world permeated by death because of the fall. So there's a conflict of realms and realities when that death is being brought near to God's life-giving presence. Does that make sense? Has that person who's touched a corpse sinned? No. In fact, in certain portions, especially where it deals with the priests and what they do with their relatives, because they have to be near to this, we realize that it's often unavoidable. Uncleanness. You have to take care of these things. And you aren't wrong to do that. The Lord's honored by them taking care of their deceased relatives. But it does nonetheless make them unclean, and they have to realize they're dealing in things that are characteristic of life outside the garden, and therefore they have to go through certain steps before they're able to reapproach the Lord's presence. So it's sort of like creating this, this experience of these realities about sin and death and the life in God's presence and the way that that's coming into the midst of this fallen world, and it's supposed to be radiating outward. But they still live in a fallen world. Is that making sense? Um, let me see what else I have here. And then this same point, I mentioned corpses, but this would also apply to things like skin disorders, molds. These other types of things that are dealt with would all be things characteristic of the fallen world. Now, I don't find this totally satisfying because, quite frankly, it doesn't seem to me to satisfy this whole life-death paradigm. It doesn't satisfy all things. So chapter 12 deals with a woman's uncleanness after childbirth. Well, we know that in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, being fruitful and multiplying is part of God's purpose. So it's not necessarily characteristic of life outside the garden. So I think there's, there's more to this, but nonetheless, the basic life-death paradigm seems to be moving in the right direction to explain why some things are clean and some other things are not clean. And like I said, all of this seems to be a tangible uh, lesson or reminder kind of about this macro story of the world. All right. Now, let me, before we move on from this section. Yes, go ahead. Um, with the Holy of Holies, so I, was, I remember having a tabernacle to move, so how would they move that without being Yeah. So I don't remember all of the details, but there is some measure which I think they covered it. And there's some sense in which when it's deconstructed, it doesn't quite have the same magic. Okay. And I think that's largely because the Lord's presence comes up, right? And then they're able to move. So they're then following his presence. Um, and so it's... The, the holiness and the sacredness isn't necessarily just the place. It's brought about by God's presence. So his presence moves away and it becomes pretty much a, a normal, common thing. And then they're able to do that. Does that, that make sense? Okay. All right, so food laws. Food laws are one of those really interesting ones that people often have questions about. Um... Take a look with me at Leviticus chapter 20. So I said food laws are dealt with in Leviticus chapter 11, but there's a brief reference back to food laws in chapter 20 that I think is quite helpful in understanding why God imposed these food laws. So Leviticus chapter 20, look at verses 24 through 26. Hence... I have said to you, 
you are to possess their land, and I myself will give it to you to possess it, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God. Notice this. Who has separated you from the peoples. So I've separated you or distinguished you from all the other peoples. You are distinct. Now continue on to verse 25. You are therefore to make a distinction. The same Hebrew word, a separation. You are therefore, because you're distinct from all the peoples, you're to make a distinction between the clean animal and the unclean, and between the unclean bird and the clean, and you shall not make yourselves detestable by animal or by bird or by anything that creeps on the ground, which I have separated or distinguished for you as unclean. Thus, in this way, by observing food laws, you are to be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart, I have separated you, I have distinguished you from the peoples to be mine. So it's almost like their diet itself is reminding them that we are distinct from all the other peoples, which makes very good sense of why when we move from the Old Covenant into the New Covenant, and now God is tearing down those dividing walls between Jew and Gentile, and now all, regardless of ethnicity or race, have equal access to God, food laws have to go. Does it make sense? Food laws are abolished and no longer apply because that's no longer what God is doing. God's distinguishing was a part of his work under the Old Covenant. Now he deals with all equally. Both Jew and Gentile equally enter the one new people of God. And so those food laws no longer need to be there. In fact, not only do they not need to be there, but insisting upon observing them in Jews not eating with Gentiles is actually regarded by Paul as being mere heresy because of the way these things are moving. God's doing something different in the New Covenant era and therefore distinguishing between those two types of animals the various types of animals, clean and unclean, is reflective of distinguishing Israel from others, which is no longer what God's doing. So, strong your attention there as we're dealing with food laws and clean and unclean, trying to give you the explanations the text does give us. So, in summary now, for this third section, this section explains how to maintain the Lord's relational presence by avoiding defiling the tabernacle with uncleanness. So first of all, there's the sacrifices. Then we saw, secondly, there's the priests who help to mediate. And thirdly, there's all kinds of things you can do to avoid defiling the tabernacle with uncleanness. If you observe these things, you'll avoid doing that. Fourth, maintaining God's relational presence by the day of atonement. Retaining God's relational presence by the day of atonement in chapter 16. Is that clock right? Seems like we're doing great on time. It is. Wow. I'm just going to turn this off to avoid distractions. There we go. All right. Day of Atonement. So notice where this chapter lies. In terms of enumerating the chapters, it's not exactly in the middle, but in terms of the sections, this lies near the center of the book. And I think that's important. Um, some people even note that it's the center book chapter, 
in the book that is the center of the Pentateuch. I'm not sure that I would go quite that far and draw all that out, but it does still seem to be very central and significant to the book of Leviticus, this day of atonement. It's important for this whole means of maintaining God's presence through these rituals. This ceremony took place once a year and is very important to Leviticus and the means it provides for maintaining the Lord's presence in Israel's midst and to protect the Israelites from being destroyed. The opening words introduce the instructions by reminding the reader of the danger in which sin and uncleanness place them. Notice this, chapter 16, verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they had approached the presence of the Lord and died. The Lord said to Moses, so we're being kind of reminded of this scene where they died. And so this whole ceremony is fronted with just the reminder of the sobriety of entering the Holy of Holies and of being in the Lord's presence. Now, there are three main stages of this ceremony. First, the high priest must offer sin offerings both for himself and for his family, and then also for the entire congregation. So he offers kind of the traditional sin offerings. Then, let me actually say first before we move on to the next part. Within this first part, the sin offerings, these sin offerings accomplish atonement on the one hand for the high priest, for his family, for the congregation, but they also are said within the day of atonement to accomplish atonement for the holy place, for all the tabernacle, really, for the holy place, for the tent of meeting, for the altar, so it's not only the people who are being atoned for, but also kind of the tabernacle complex. That's what has occasionally been said to become defiled, right? My tabernacle becomes defiled. And so even that needs to be cleansed. And this day of atonement seems to be the place that's done. None of those sacrifices back in chapters 1 to 7 ever explained atonement or cleansing for the tabernacle. This is the one that seems once a year to accomplish a cleansing for the tabernacle. So the first stage is the, the sin offerings. Second stage, the high priest places, this is the scapegoat, he places both of his hands on the head of the scapegoat and confesses all of Israel's sins over that scapegoat. But notice what, now that that one is bearing their sins, it can't be sacrificed to the Lord. It can't go into the Lord's presence. It's actually taken the other direction. So it's symbolizing the removal of sins, Israel's sins, from the Lord's presence and from them. And then thirdly, and finally, the high priest offers two rams as burnt offerings, one for himself and one for the congregation. And the burnt offerings seem to more so just be a worship symbol. After having dealt with sin and uncleanness, then they just offer this worship. So, it does raise the question of, if this Day of Atonement ritual is so important, how does it relate to these sacrifices that have already been given in chapters 1 to 7? After all, the two types of sacrifices, sin offerings and burnt offerings, are already mentioned there. And if those are being regularly offered throughout the year, why this, these special ones this one time? Well, for one thing, we obviously see that there's this whole scapegoat ritual, which we haven't found anywhere else, and is significant, and that's removing Israel's sin from the camp. Uh, but there's two main ways that it, it kind of complements and supplements the sacrifices already mentioned in chapters 1 through 7. 
First way, it atones for unintentional sins which were never noticed and therefore never dealt with. So in chapters 1 to 7, it will often say things like, if anyone commits an unintentional sin and then they come to be aware of it because they remember it or because someone brings it to their attention, then this is what they're to do to deal with it. What about those people who commit an unintentional sin and they never realized it? Well, it seems like the Day of Atonement is dealing with those. Secondly, it seems to cleanse the tabernacle of those high-handed sins. Do you remember the chart, the table, that on the far right side were those sins for which there were no sacrifices? The person has to be cut off. Well, that's true. That person can't be atoned. They can't be forgiven. But their sin has still defiled the tabernacle, so that must be dealt with. And it seems that the Day of Atonement is dealing with that. The Day of Atonement is the only time sacrifices are said to be cleansing the tabernacle. All right, so those are the two main ways that the Day of Atonement supplements and adds to those sacrifices in chapters 1 through 7. Notice also that this is the one time per year that a human can enter the Holy of Holies. And even then, not only is it one time per year, but only the high priest can enter. And then when the high priest enters, he has to take a censer, you know, a fire pan, which has coals for burning, and then he puts incense on it, and it puts out the smoke. And he has to fill the Holy of Holies with smoke so he can't see the Lord who dwells there. So even though there's all of this going on where they're able to get closer than we've seen before outside the garden to the Lord's presence, nonetheless, um, we're still a long way from the garden, right? Man's benefiting from this. He's being blessed by God's relational presence within Israel, but we're still a long ways from being back there. It's kind of confusing because getting closer than ever, right? Spatially speaking, but somewhat metaphorically, it's still a long ways to get back to what God really intends to restore and complete what he began in the garden. So, to summarize chapter 16. This section explains the vital role of the Day of Atonement for purging the camp of sin and uncleanness in order to maintain the Lord's relational presence. And next... Section 5, Maintaining God's Relational Presence by Holy Lives, which is chapters 17 through 25. Now, with these chapters, the book shifts from instructions for sacrifices and dealing with uncleanness to really instructions for living holy lives, befitting life in the presence of a holy God. So at this point, we start seeing all kinds of statements about you are to be holy because I am holy. Do this, do this, do this, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And it's all about how they should be living, what they should be doing now if they're to dwell in the presence of a holy God. And many of the commands here are dealing with sins that are of the, we could say, the high-handed variety. And thus, they don't offer sacrifice as a solution. The only solution is to be cut off. And we haven't dealt with what cut off means up to this point. And it doesn't give us, the text doesn't say it super clearly, but one thing that is clear is they're removed from Israel. They're cut off from the covenant people. And it seems like in some context that it may also involve being cut off from life on this earth. 
that they're actually put to death. But at the very least, at the very least, they're removed from the presence of Israel. And within the way that you're seeing this whole narrative come together, it should be clear that to be removed from Israel, where God's life-giving relational presence is found, is not far different than being killed altogether anyways, right? They're being sent out into the world of death, the realm of death. Uh, where there is no hope because they aren't being brought near to the God who gives life. So which of those it is doesn't really make too much difference, actually, within, um, within the conceptual world being presented to us. All right, so that's there's a lot there in 17 to 25 that we could talk about, but uh, we can't talk about all kinds of details when we're trying to cover it in one, one class. So to summarize that, This section explains how the Israelites are to live holy lives in order to maintain the Lord's relational presence. How they're to live holy lives in order to maintain the Lord's relational presence. Next, section six. How the Lord will bless obedience and punish disobedience. Chapter 26. Go ahead and turn there. So this section lays out the blessings the Lord will bring upon Israel as they obey him, but then also when they disobey him, the punishments he will bring upon them. So if you're looking there, you'll see that we have two major sections, beginning in verse 3, all the way down through verse 13. This is the blessing section. And notice verse 3 should begin with something like an if, and then verse 4 should begin with something like a then. The two sides of a condition. The condition in verse 3, if you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments so as to carry them out, then, and God explains what he'll do in verses 4 through 13. We'll come back to those things that he'll do, but go ahead now and notice in verse 14, we have another one. But if you do not obey me and do not carry out all these commandments, And he goes on, if instead you reject my statutes and your soul abhors my ordinances so as not to carry out all my commandments, and so you break my covenant, then, verse 16, I in turn will do this to you. And the rest of the chapter is basically focused on the punishments, but it has sort of this movement where it gives one level of punishment And then he goes on to another section. If still, after those punishments, you don't repent, then there'll be a deeper level of punishments. And if at that level, you still don't repent, then another level. And it culminates with exile, which we know from the history of Israel is right where it leads, right? An exile. But hopefully now, after having seen what we've seen so far in Genesis and Exodus and the way the storyline is unfolding, we understand why exile from the land is such a big deal, right? Exile from the land is not simply a matter of real estate. Exile from the land is a matter of God's relational presence. They're being removed from that. And even God's whole attempt to bring all of creation back to what he began at creation and to complete that. If Israel's not being blessed, then what does Genesis 12, 1 to 3 say is going to happen to all the nations? It's through them he's going to bless all the nations, right? So there is no blessing for all the nations. So it's a huge deal. Okay, so with that high-level overview, let's go back to the blessings, beginning in verse 4. 
And what I want you to notice here is the way that these blessings and punishments are connected to the redemptive plan which we've been seeing in Genesis and Exodus. We basically find that the blessings here um, are God's original plan for man in the garden. And they're a reversal of the consequences for sin. So just notice some examples here. Verse 4. Then I shall give you rains in their season, so that the land will yield its produce, and the trees of the field will bear their fruit. Indeed, your threshing will last until your grape gathering, and grape gathering will last until sowing time. You will thus eat your food to the full and live securely on the land. And then jump down to verse 10. You will eat the old supply and clear out the old because of the new. So you'll eat some of what you've got, and then before you can finish eating that supply, there'll be more, and so you'll just throw out the, the first stuff. So what curse or what punishment do you remember from Genesis that's being kind of reversed there? Thorns and thistles. Yeah, good. Thorns and thistles, Genesis three seventeen. right? The curse on the ground, that you'll have to work the land and you'll never have enough. <laughs> and we see the Lord's reversing that. And what he's actually returning to is man's responsibility to work and keep the garden and to make it fruitful, to exercise rule over it and ultimately, as we saw in chapter 2, to extend its boundaries so the whole earth becomes a garden. So the glory of the Lord covers the whole earth. So that's agricultural prosperity. Verse 6, we see peace. I shall also grant peace in the land so that you may lie down with no one making you tremble. I shall also eliminate harmful beasts from the land and no sword will pass through your land. Again, we're moving back to God's original intentions at creation. We're getting rid of all the things like murder between Cain and Abel. All these problems are being undone through their obedience. Verse 9. So I will turn towards you and make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will confirm my covenant with you. So that's building on the Abrahamic covenant, right? That God would make Abraham fruitful and multiply him, which is really like we said, just simply fulfilling God's original creation purpose, that he blessed them and told them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, right? And the threat from the, the consequences of the fall was that woman, Genesis three sixteen would find difficulty in conception and childbearing, right? So see how all of these are relating to God's redemptive purposes, going all the way back to what he initially planned, how it was threatened by man's sin, and how he's recovering this, through his purposes of working with Abraham and then with Israel. And then finally, verses 11 and 12. Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul will not reject you, and I will also walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. So that same relationship that we saw in the garden will be restored within this situation. And then we find that the curses are the opposite of all these features. And like I mentioned, particularly significant is the exile. Whereas man, Adam and Eve, were initially put into a garden, which they're to work and keep, and from which they would extend blessings to the whole earth, and they lose that. They're kicked out of that land, that garden, because of disobedience. But then Abraham is given a new land where he will be blessed, where the Lord will dwell with him like a new garden, and from which he will extend blessings to all nations. But what we find is that if he's disobedient, just like Adam and Eve, he is going to be exiled from that land given to him. Also important in this chapter is the promise of 
verses 44 to 45. Verse 44. Yet in spite of this, that's uh, all the punishments will bring upon them, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them, nor will I so abhor them so as to destroy them, which would be breaking my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. But I will remember for them the covenant with their ancestors, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. So what we see here is that there's that dynamic we talked about with the Abrahamic covenant, that God will never give up on it. Even when he sends them into exile, he will still bring them back. He has purposed to fulfill those. And yet, I said there is a, a sort of conditional nature to it in that not everyone gets to participate in those blessings. As you see, those who are disobedient don't participate in the blessings, do they? They instead receive the punishments. But God's not thereby going to simply give up on his promises, which is what this is indicating. So there's both sides of that that we have to hold in tension. One, one person writing on this has spoken of conditionality within unconditionality. So the overall banner is that God's going to keep his promise. But within that, how he's going to work that out is going to be conditional based upon who's obeying and who's not obeying. All right, so let's summarize now chapter 26. This section reminds Israel that just as trusting obedience was necessary for Adam and Eve to dwell in God's relational presence in the garden, so it is for Israel. Israel will maintain God's relational presence and the blessings that flow from that if she will obey God. But she will forfeit his presence and blessings if she disobeys. And now, finally, the last chapter, chapter 27, instructions for vows. This section simply gives instructions for keeping vows. For example, if a man makes a vow to give something to the Lord, but then later, before he fulfills that vow, decides he wants to substitute something for what he had vowed, well, that's permissible, but how do you set a value on the substitute in the original thing vowed to make sure that what he's substituting has an appropriate relationship to what he originally vowed. So you've got to know how do you value these things. And chapter 27 deals with things like that. Just regulations regarding vows. And the place of this chapter, like I said earlier, in the book is interesting, and people generally struggle to explain why the book ends on this note, um, which is why I've labeled it in appendix. However... It does not require much imagination to understand that keeping vows made to the Lord is both relevant to the temple system, because they're being brought to the temple, right? They're being brought to the priests. And so obviously a book that's devoted to how the temple system works, the whole deal with vows is obviously relevant. And also, it's obviously relevant to maintaining God's relational presence. This is obviously not compatible if people are making vows and not keeping them. So it's clear that it has a relevance here. Why it comes at the very end, that I'm not quite so able to explain. But it does seem that it certainly has relevance. So in summary, for this section, this section provides instructions related to vows. (laughs) Easy way to summarize it. So, wow, this is like the first time we've actually finished on time and not had to rush. So just to 
summarize all of that. The purpose? To instruct Israel in how to maintain the Lord's relational presence in her midst in the face of the threat of sin and impurity. Sin and impurity? Threatened for God to remove his presence, but this tells us how his presence might be retained. And then the structure, which you have there, the seven parts mostly devoted to how to maintain God's relational presence with the last two about how the Lord will bless obedience, punish disobedience, and then instructions for vows. Questions? I have two. Yes, go ahead. Yep. Females in the garden, there probably wasn't any. I, I, if I understand correctly, there wasn't pain. Yep. And because of the curse, there was. And therefore, that might have something to do with why um, you had to wait before you were able to. Yes, that may. Um, obviously, blood is another factor. So, blood symbolizes the life. And so, anytime there's a loss of blood, it does seem like that's associated more so with the loss of life. And so that could be part of it. Because obviously there's also um, just whole regulations re- regarding menstruation. So why, why is that making someone unclean? Um, and I think it might again be just due to the blood. <laughs> no, there probably wasn't. That's true. I'm just thinking the, the whole blood piece with regard to life seems to connect it in. But the pain piece may be part of it too. trying to think of any before this that was certainly after this yep can you think of any others before this can't think right now of any before this yeah alright other questions by Jewish reckoning what was a sin that surpassed the sacrificial atonement that was yeah yeah for which they had to be cut off yeah let me just see if I can quickly lay my eyes on one here, but near the end there's a whole whole lot of them. I think pretty much all of those ones like in chapter 18 and chapter 20 that are referred to as uncovering someone's nakedness which seem to be various kinds of sexual immorality, those seem to almost all be ones for which being cut off is necessary. Yeah, so look at chapter 18, verse 29. So after a whole bunch of these sexual immoralities are mentioned, 18.29 says, For whoever does any of these abominations, those persons who do so shall be cut off from among their people. So that would be just one. But I would recommend, if you're interested in that, just go through and see everywhere it says they should be cut off. You can even use you know, Bible software and search for that, cut off and find all those. Yep. Other questions? Yeah. I just finished reading Ezekiel in my devotions, and it's very similar to this in that there's sacrifices, but in this, it's... I heard, I've heard that, you know, these sacrifices are pointing to the one sacrifice, Christ. But in Ezekiel, it's happening afterwards. So how do you explain that? Yeah question for Dr. Frierkson. <laughs> um, and what it appears, how it appears is that 
although Hebrews does seem to suggest that Christ has permanently replaced all sacrifices, Ezekiel, that's the last section, 40 to 48, which speaks of, prophesies an eschatological rebuilt temple and sacrifices, does seem to suggest that they will be reinstituted then. And so, yeah, I, I'm not any better. Do you have any comments on that, how to reconcile that? No. Okay. <laughs> this is actually, that tension is part of what would lead many people in what we call like a covenantal tradition to say that that won't happen, that you won't have a rebuilt temple with um, sacrifices. The difficulty is, what do you do with Ezekiel? Right? What does it mean? MacArthur, I read in MacArthur's notes on it. He said that just like communion, we're referring back to Christ, that the sacrifices of the yep. new millennial will also be referring back to, and he referred to Hebrews chapter 10. Correct. So that's, that's I mean, people obviously give explanations for it, and the, the fact that it becomes more um, kind of ceremonial, just remembering um, a memorial function is often stated, and that would make sense. Um, but it is still a bit interesting in light of the reality to which they pointed already come in the death of Christ. Yeah. So no, I, that's a tension I, I can't resolve for you. But that, that very thing does contribute a lot to various theological systems, like on the covenantal and dispensational varieties. Any other questions? Some of you were eager to go watch the Super Bowl and are hoping we'd stop talking about this. Go ahead. Not a question, more of a comment. I just, reading, uh, reading 26 with the Cursing, yeah. it almost perfectly matches the description of exile. It's like reading in Lamentations and then later in Ezekiel, like, uh, like you will eat the flesh of your sons and daughters, and that happens totally exactly. Yes, and if if they come back, like if they're in the land of the enemies and they turn back to me, they I will they'll still stay there, but I will not spurn them yeah. in that land just kind of interesting to see that like so david's observing that in chapter 26 with the blessings and punishments that the language used there is almost exactly the language used either by the prophets who are prophesying the coming exile or even by the historical books who recount what happened in the exile and i would say that's because they know leviticus through and through and either they're prophets who are building on that and adopting that language or they're writing after the fact and this is the grid through which they interpret what happened. Like Lamentations speak specifically of that mothers eating their children during the siege. And they're drawing that language exactly from this. Not because they're imposing these expectations on historical reality, but they're drawing out what they're observing around them that has significance because it is exactly what we were told would happen. Does that make sense? That's what they want to show to the people around them, to their contemporaries. Yep, good observation. All right, we'll stop there. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for your questions. We have one more week, and we will fit in. I almost said try to fit in, but I'm going to be more optimistic. We will fit in numbers in Deuteronomy. All right, let me close in prayer. Lord, we do thank you for your word, and uh, we pray that you would help us to understand it rightly, help us to prize it, to give ourselves to knowing it, um, that we might learn to live in, in a world and with lenses that are shaped by your world, by your word, that it would teach us how to view all reality and, and what's, what matters and what is the framework in which to make sense of the world. Um, and I pray, Lord, that each of these lessons, even though they seem small, would be just installments, deposits toward that end. Um, 
I pray now, Lord, as, as people leave here and go to various places, whether home to get some rest or to spend time with others, that uh, even this time spent uh, watching football would be a time that you would use to uh, just nurture fellowship among believers. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.